0: From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Leg Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll speak with local labor leader, Jesus Salas, about the roots and legacy of the farm workers' movement. Then we'll explore the terminology surrounding Hispanic and Latino communities and how identities change over time.
1: There's a sort of this constant struggle to unite a very diverse population to figure out terms that represent everybody Hispanic, Latino, Latina, and then now Latinx are all attempts to create this kind of unity amongst a very diverse population.
0: We'll celebrate the 45th anniversary of El Rey Grocery Store, one of the largest Hispanic owned businesses in the state. Plus, Bubbler Talk looks into a symphony conductor who filed a formal complaint over, of all things, a foghorn.
2: Sounding the horns every 15 seconds is too often and a flagrant form of noise pollution.
0: All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nolikowski. Thanks for joining us. We'll start with Jesus Salas. Salas is a noted labor leader who, as a young man, was inspired by Cesar Chavez and helped to found Obreros Unidos, Workers United. The organization led a historic march from Watoma to Madison to demand lawmakers address the violations of the state's minimum wage laws and housing codes. In addition to fighting for migrant workers' rights, Salas also joined forces with other Milwaukee civil rights leaders like Father Grappi and Vel Phillips to advance even more community causes. Salas wrote a new book that explores the roots and legacy of the farmworkers' movement and beyond, and it's called Obreros Unidos, published by the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. Salas joins me now to share more about what he's learned from decades of organizing, starting with the impact of organizing families.
3: The first four, three or four chapters of the book, where because of how, where I was situated in the workforce, We used to work in crews, like in the cotton fields, we were all segregated with the Afro-Americans. And uh, even here in Wisconsin, there would be different crews from different parts of Texas. So on the outside were the males, uh, our fathers, the older males. And then uh, the unmarried women were towards the end of the crew. And then the younger uh, those of us and we, we started out very young, as, as you noted in the book. Uh, I was seven years old when we started migrating. We were towards the, the center with our aunt, my mother and my aunt. So, the picture that I write is of women working, women and children working. That that was my point of view from the very beginning and. Uh, the other thing that I think that is mindful of the it being a family uh, workforce was we would have never had a youth movement. We would have never had a, f- a, a women's movement grow out of the farm workers' movement if it hadn't been family-based. So, you know, I tell my brothers and sisters in the labor movement now, you have to engage the whole family. You can't leave the, you know, mom at home, you know. This is primarily a male-dominated labor union, uh, 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 labor unions you know the the other the other thing that uh, that I think is important in relationship to the family was the um what we call social unionism. In other words, we wanted to provide services. We won elections for a union contract in, in 67 after organizing 65 and 66. But Libby's wouldn't, uh, the, the company, the multinational that we organized, would negotiate with us. They moved all their operations out of state. So then we went into the processing plants, into Libby's uh, canning company. So we went from the fields to the canning operations. And of course, I had been working with Chavez, See, Sir Chavez, there was this period of time, and he said, look, you've been at it almost five years. If you help me with a great boycott, uh, I'll help you with the... Um We've, we've been in Wisconsin. Once we win in California, I'll come and help you in, uh, in uh, Wisconsin. Who was to know it was going to take us five years to win the first contract and the great boycott? But here I come to Milwaukee in 1968. Of course, you know what was going on in Milwaukee in 68 the open housing uh, uh, marches, etc. Father Grappi and the youth council. But right. we kept on organizing families the same way that we organized in the field. So the whole nexus of uh, organizing. Youth organizing uh, women, I think the, we we had both, not only in the fields in central Wisconsin, but when we came here to Milwaukee also because we never changed uh, our our way of uh, of organizing
0: right. And on the note of Father Grappi and, There was a movement between you and the other leaders like Grappi, Chavez, also Val Phillips, to name one, where you combined forces of the farm workers and the civil rights movements here in Milwaukee.
3: And that's very very little noted. Uh, I was very happy to address those issues. And I call it the intersection between the civil rights movement and the farm workers movement. And I don't know if it happened by accident, but... When I came to Milwaukee, Father John Maurice at the Archdiocese-funded offices at 524 West National gave me a back room to work the great boycott out of there. And lo and behold, that same summer of 68, Father Grappi is marching from the north side to Ellen Bradley, just several blocks down the, down the street. So I just walked over and introduced myself. And... You know, that was the beginning. That's how it started. That's yeah. how it started. And uh, he joined with us at the Gray Boycott in uh, Capitol Drive against Cole's Food Stores when we started uh, expanding the activities into uh, accessing the University of Wisconsin here at Milwaukee. He joined us uh, there. And, of course, we joined together with the Welfare Marches. So I, I joined with not only Father Grappi, but I met Val Phillips and— and uh, Orville Pitts, uh, uh, Lloyd Barbie was a master of ceremony at one of our steel workers hall at that time. Uh, and then when we started, he started the lawsuit of the uh to desegregate the Milwaukee public school system we piggybacked and and we we demanded the bilingual education and and uh, the hiring of, uh, of bilingual staff etc so yes those things community. those those efforts. things uh, I- I- intersected uh, the farm workers movement and the uh, and the civil rights movement it's a great pleasure to work with father grappi to get to know Val Phillips and and work with Lloyd Barbie in the desegregation lawsuit yeah
0: absolutely what kind of Lessons about strategizing and leadership did you learn from them when you were working? Well,
3: with them? it's interesting that you talk about lessons learned. And you always, you know, if you keep your eyes open, you're always learning uh, this is the first time I ever lived in a city, that first of all, okay. being a migrant worker, we've just lived in, uh, in not only rural areas but in very small communities. So I was very apprehensive about living in Milwaukee. Of course, I can't. You know, i never survived the experience. I fell in love with it uh, uh, when I came here. But I recall Father Grappi, you know, uh, stopping over and watching us uh, organize at the Coles Food Store in, uh, in uh, on Capitol Drive. And, and uh, he was telling me, he says, you do a great job. You come over, you got all your your leaflets printed. When the people come over, you give them the leaflet, don't buy grapes and that, you know, write letters to the growers so they will negotiate with the farm workers in California and that. But you know you got to apply a little bit of direct action. He says, "Well, what what is that, Father crap? And He says, "Well." you know, you've been, how many weeks are you going on now? More than a month that you've been here picketing and you still, you know, they won't take the grapes off, you know? I said, yeah, you know, we get real angry about that. Well, why don't you go over, when the, the customers are coming in, why don't you go over there and stop them? <laughs> at the parking lot, talk to them, you know, tell them to go chop someplace else. And that's what we started to do. We started adapting and of course, uh, and then we went even further when we, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, committing civil disobedience as such, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, peaceful, nonviolent, etc. Good trouble. You know, good trouble, <laughs> yes, as a congressman would say. But uh, yes, we learned quite a bit.
0: We mentioned Cesar Chavez before. He said something along the lines of "there are no natural-born leaders." Would you agree? Do you consider oh, yourself absolutely. a leader?
3: No, there. No, no. Well, there are people that have certain skills. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think people uh, associate oratorical skills with you know having the ability to be able to coincide, but not necessarily such a right out of college. My sophomore year, and for the next three years, I worked uh, uh, organizing children, trying to get their their parents to, uh, you know, uh, send them to Las Escuelitas, the little schools. And the schools grew from one demonstration project in 1962 to seven centers. Uh, all over central Wisconsin. So here I'm going back to Texas uh, to recruit because there were no bilingual faculty, and we needed at least one bilingual faculty in each of those seven centers, so I had no authority to hire anybody. But the long and short of it is the United Migrant Opportunity Services, which is still going on right now 50 years mm-hmm. later, get funded to provide childcare, but in Southeastern Wisconsin. So not only had I been a, a, a farm worker and all the people, I, when I was organizing, people knew my background. And then when I, went, when I went back into the camps to organize the daycare centers, it was to convince the farm workers that this is what we should do to improve our working and living conditions. That was a task. Uh, it wasn't that I had no abilities or that, you know, but it was just a, how do we, do this and of course I was new to it Uh, the very first strike was uh, a disaster and I take full responsibility because uh, we got caught uh, we got caught we a lot of knowledge about uh, how you conduct a strike you know get assigned the cards and you know farm workers like everybody else they don't like to sign things if they don't know what they're getting into you know so things like that and Mm -hmm. many of them had never even voted before so the following year when we ordered an election that was the first time many of them had ever uh, voted because the franchise of course doesn't come until, uh, you know, uh, uh, the early—the uh, mid-'60s. So, yeah, there was a lot of lessons learned myself. So, Caesar is right. You—yeah, uh, uh, there's no natural-born leaders. You have to be trained. And to convince the uh, the police and the authorities, the law enforcement, that we were a peaceful, you know, uh, demonstration. And we, you know, most of the time we did, but it took some time. Uh, I had never been to jail in all the years. like four or five years that I was in the, in the labor camps. When I got to Milwaukee, I couldn't stay out of jail, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> every time we went out in the streets, you know, the sergeant would come in that one, that one, you know, that kind of thing.
0: So yeah. You know I mean? So, so learning how to organize and then in turn learning how to lead and, and how learning how
3: to lead and learning how to live in a completely different environment, an mm-hmm. urban environment where. You know, the, uh, we never had any any difficulties, any challenges, that kind of challenges in the field. Uh, uh, we were out by ourselves most of the time, and unless, you know, the uh, uh, it wasn't until we got here that we had to adjust those uh, those issues. And they had to adjust uh, for us too, so uh, make adjustments for us too, so.
0: Well, I mean, lots of adjustments, lots of decades <laughs> of action, lots of reaction right. yeah. and change. Right, right. Your book is not just about what you've helped move forward in the past. It's also about what's left to do and accomplish that's in front of us. So what are some key things you think need to change for Milwaukee's Latinx community to continue to thrive?
3: Well, the uh, for instance, the University of Wisconsin at, uh, at Milwaukee could do a better job providing more extensive uh, hiring of the faculty. I know this is a a bad time of the uh, fiscal year to be talking about that because of the present uh, legislature has not been very kind to funding the university, or even though, you know, we've uh, at the University of Madison, we've uh, kept tuition frozen for some time. and then, the children, qualified uh, applicants of undocumented have to pay out a state tuition. When I was a member of the Board of Regents, we convinced the chancellors to provide some assistance to them, and then I worked with Governor Doyle to uh, pass an in state tuition for what we call the Dreamers. And then uh, uh, Governor Walker, when he came in in 2010, not only takes away our right to organize uh, as public employees, but takes away the uh, right of the DREAMers to uh, pay in-state tuition. So there's a big gap that needs to be remedied, and bosses de la Frontera, I'm still active with them to see if we can remedy that. The driver's license, that was just punitive. There was no reason. If you believe in safe roads, there shouldn't be anybody out there driving without learning how to drive. And And the fact that you have a whole community uh, because they, they simply haven't uh, processed their documentation. Two political parties haven't been able to come together and resolve some of the issues. Look at the border that is uh, the issues that are going on right now and. Uh, look at the uh, at the idea of uh, of inclusion and diversity in our colleges, and uh, the legislature just said that 32 million dollars the University of Wisconsin are not going to be funded for this diversity and inclusion is not solely about uh, including African Americans or uh, Latinos, or in other words, a minority issue. I recall uh, um, young women coming from uh, rural schools who couldn't get into engineering's program, that they had to be uh, supported with STEM programs, in other words, to enhance their mathematical skills to be able to get into their engineering uh, 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 programs. And I'm talking about 50 years ago. uh, and now, what do we have? We have almost as many, if not more, law students and the medical applicants uh, uh, female as we do male. But it was because of those efforts that were made to enhance their mathematical abilities and other coursework that they needed to get in some of these ch- courses that the poorly funded uh, rural schools that they came from that otherwise were outstanding students, their mathematical abilities and other skills had to be enhanced, just like uh, some of us that came from Poor inner-city schools that we needed to be, uh, have our, uh, our English and our math uh, uh, also enhanced. And, and that's what diversity is. It is about all. So those are the things, I think, that are still out there that weren't there when we were organizing uh, uh, that still need to be addressed. And it uh, takes all of us, takes a whole community to respond to that and to uh, uh, delve into these issues and find out what's going on and to uh, be critical uh, about the issues that are uh, on the table as such.
0: Jesus Salas is a noted labor leader and the author of Obreros Unidos, the Roots and Legacy of the Farm Workers Movement. You can find more information at WUWM.com, and while you're there, you can explore all the coverage we've done for Hispanic Heritage Month. Hispanic, Latino, and Latinx, they're all pan-ethnic terms meant to describe a diverse population connected to Spanish-speaking and Latin American ancestry. Hispanic refers to people who speak Spanish and or who are descended from a Spanish-speaking lineage. Latino refers to someone who is from or descended from people from Latin America. And Latinx is a gender-neutral or non-binary alternative to Latino or Latina. Joseph A. Rodriguez is a professor of history and urban studies at UW-Milwaukee. He says the preference for these terms can vary by generation, profession, and region. He joins WUWM race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell to explain.
1: The U.S. Census had a hard time getting, quote unquote, Hispanics to fill, fill out the census forms because the terms really didn't uh, fit everybody. So, some, sometimes the terms were Mexican or Spanish speakers or Latin Americans, and those terms uh, didn't really uh, appeal to a lot of people. And so the, the U.S. census moves to Hispanic in 1980 and other Spanish uh, population. And that really did help to uh, gain more uh, participation in the census by people who uh, were filling out their, their census forms. That, though, did pose a, a little bit of an issue because it's it's a term that was sort of imposed on the community. It didn't really Kind of bubble up from the grassroots it was sort of a made-up term and there's different theories about where his, the hispanic word came from there had been a term hispano in in, in new mexico that was used and so possibly the government uh, grabbed onto that term uh, some argue that uh, hispanic was uh, used by more elites like in florida with the cubans that they had influence over the government uh, but You know, in general, the story is that Hispanic was sort of a top-down imposition on on a population that that was very diverse. Um, I should say though, despite that, Hispanic really does take off. It really is successful in generating quite a bit of uh, identity connection. Uh, There's Hispanic uh, Magazine uh, is is published, uh, Hispanic Business Associations. It does tend to be a term that's it's more associated with, with more middle class populations, uh, older populations uh, embrace it. And um, a lot of people that uh, you know, perhaps are part of smaller uh, groups like say Colombians or uh, you know, Costa Ricans might use Hispanic to sort of place themselves within a, a broader community.
4: So you mentioned folks feeling like Hispanic was an imposition. What happened then?
1: It did inspire some more progressive, more radical, uh, more socially active uh, members of the community to say, you know, we want to create our own term. And that term that that, that comes out of that struggle is Latino mm-hmm. and Latina, because you know it is a Spanish word. Uh, it is gender specific, you know, Latino, Latina, and that becomes pretty popular. So, you know, after the 80s, 90s to the present, a Latino is, is a pretty popular uh, term, but it has its problems too, as I just mentioned, right? It, the positive thing about it is it kind of comes from the community. It comes from these community activists. Um, it's not a government term that's in, imposed on the community it is a Spanish word, but it does have the the gender issue, right? So you have to identify as Latino or Latina, right? That's okay. But then we have sort of the rise of the LGBTQ plus community and the discussion of civil rights. And there is this sort of new push, I say within the last, you know, Uh, maybe 10 years, um, to say, you know, Latino, Latina, okay, maybe I don't want to identify as male or female, right? Maybe I want to be non-binary. So Latinx, then, is sort of this newer, and it is the newest uh, terminology that's used. Um, And it is uh, an even more sort of, I, I would say, politically radical or progressive reaction on the part of primarily a younger generation. It also though, you know, responds to use of the word X in American society, right? You have X games, you have XFL. You have, X sort of becomes kind of a, you know, a trendy uh, way of, of talking about something new and modern. And Latinx has been very successful amongst younger uh, Latinos, you know, students, especially around in, in, in the academy, in, in colleges and universities, Latinx is, is very popular.
4: What about the response to Latinx? How are people feeling about that term?
1: It's kind of spawned a sort of counter reaction on the part of the older generations who either respond to Hispanic or they respond to better to Latino, Latina. Or, and this is really kind of uh, a point as well going back to the 1960s and 1970s, there was something called the Chicano movement by Mexican American who opposed the Vietnam War, who really were part of, you know, Cesar Chavez and the civil rights movement, the farm workers movement. And of course, they were really some of the first civil rights activists that succeeded in pushing society against discrimination. You know, they they were very successful in promoting bilingual education, um, along with other you know, political activists like within the Puerto Rican community as well. So it wasn't just the Chicano movement, but there, there were Puerto Ricans also. But a lot of these older generation, people who are now my age, you know, or maybe even older, say, you know, when you use Latinx, you're kind of forgetting, you're overlooking the Chicano movement, you know, you're overlooking the Puerto Rican movement, you're overlooking the New Yorkians, you know. And, and so there is this kind of generational uh, fight or struggle or argument that's taking place about the, these these terms. And they coexist, right? I mean, you still have a lot of people who use Hispanic, especially in the business community, uh, and especially like in the Southwest, I, I would say Midwest more, you still have people who use Latino, Latina, and you still have a lot of uh, people now using Latinx. So there's a sort of this constant struggle to unite a very diverse population, to figure out terms that represent everybody fairly, and and so uh, Hispanic, Latino, Latina, and then now Latinx, are all attempts to uh, create this kind of unity uh, amongst a very diverse population.
4: Is there a term you prefer?
1: <laughs> well, I, I should say too that um, there's all these other terms that are floating out there mm. that that uh, are not pan-Latino, obviously, right? That individuals might identify better with, right? For example, if you're from Texas and you're Mexicano, you you might call yourself Mexicano, you might call yourself Tejano, Mm. meaning Texan. I always point out, if you drive along the South side of Milwaukee, where uh, the vast majority of the the Mexican population is from Texas, from South Texas, you'll see bars that say Tejano. This kind of pride in being Texan uh, has created their own, you know, they create their own term, Tejano, Tejana, uh, Mexicano, Mexicana, I mean, there are a whole number of other terms that people might feel better about, you know, identifying, with, like Cubano, uh, I, I mentioned Puerto Rican, you know, um, the, the three terms that we're talking about are pan-Latino terms, but there are all these other you know, ways of, of people that people identify themselves. Um, also, also you know Salvadoreno and, and, you know, from people from El Salvador. I, I kind of grew up with Hispanic and Latino. You know, Latinx is, again, I'm older. So Latinx, I was like, well, what is Latinx? You know, I had no clue, right? All these terms uh, I have questions about because I'm the child of a Spanish immigrant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I've never really been clear, quite clear, you know, about, okay, do I fit? Am I, am I included? Even though I've always been accepted, you know, uh, by, by the community, since the Spanish community is kind of very small, you know, in in lots of ways. But like I said, yeah, as as an older person, uh, Hispanic is something I'm very comfortable with Latino, Latina uh, is, is, you know, that's probably the majority of my life. That term has been out there.
4: I was going to ask you if there was a right term to use, but I think with you explaining the nuance and different perspectives that exist around these terms, we can't say what is right and what's wrong.
1: These terms are contested, you know, and for some, like like I said at the beginning, some people feel, some older people feel like, when you use Latinx, you're kind of throwing away the history of the Chicano movement, you're throwing away the history, you're, you're ignoring that history. You know, and then I think Hispanic is used a lot in the business community. And so some people say, if you use Hispanic, you must be conservative. You must be sort of mm. a capitalist. <laughs> it is interesting how these terms are, um, are contested and, and you know, in some ways fought over.
4: Do you think it's important for people to know the history behind these terms, Hispanic, Latino and Latinx?
1: I think it would be nice if, if more people understood the history of the Latino population, Latinx population in general, if people would understand more of, you know, the origin of the population going back before the United States was was formed. I mean, you know, the, the origin of uh, Puerto Rico and Cuba and, and just lat- more Latin American history in general, but then this, the American Southwest, uh, you know, before 1848, before the U.S. conquered, you know, half of Mexico's territory, there were a lot of Mexican, a lot of uh, indigenous people living there, Uh, you know, just knowing that this population has been around for a long time. Um, And I think that would, as opposed to saying everyone's an immigrant, everyone's, you know, a recent immigrant, uh, and just just to know how long the population's been around, that kind of history is important, to know about the participation in our awards, you know, our veterans. Uh, to know that uh, Hispanic, Latino, Latinx have participated on, in all of, in the military, but also to know that the the, the recent immigrants and immigrants from the past are, have assimilated, right? Have, have been successful, uh, you know, and, and not to be, I guess, so so dismissive of the immigrant population. You know, this is a successful community uh, by any statistical uh, analysis and that I think is important.
0: Joseph Rodriguez is a UW-Milwaukee professor of history and urban studies. He spoke to WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell last year. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation you'd like to hear on the air, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com likeeffect like effect. Being out of tune would undoubtedly annoy any musician or conductor. In about 20 minutes, Bubbler Talk explores one conductor who found a foghorn so out of tune, he filed a complaint about it. But first, we'll go visit El Rey grocery store as it celebrates 45 years in the community. Keep listening to Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. This year marked the 45th anniversary for El Rey Grocery Store. The brothers Ernesto and Beto Villarreal opened the first El Rey in 1978. They were following in the footsteps of their father, who ran a small store in the 60s that served Mexican immigrants like themselves in Milwaukee. Years later, the Hispanic Grocery has grown to include four stores and a tortilla factory that supplies local restaurants with chips and tamales. It's one of the largest Hispanic-owned businesses in the state. Over time, El Rey's offerings have evolved along with Milwaukee's immigrant community. At first, Milwaukee's Hispanic people came mostly from Mexico, so El Rey just offered Mexican products. As new immigrant communities came from the Caribbean and Central and South America, the store evolved to cater to their tastes and traditions too. WUWM's Rafael Munoz and Lena Tran went to El Rey off Cesar Chavez Drive to talk with customers and staff about their beloved grocery store.
5: If you're going to El Rey on Cesar Chavez, you will have to maneuver through the bustling parking lot. The elote vendor outside of the store will be tempting, but keep walking, the sliding doors are in sight. Once you make it in, you're rewarded with abundance. You can get anything at El Rey. Candy, cakes, fresh cut fruit, pan dulces from the bakery. You keep walking and there's a counter where you can order hot food. There's construction workers taking a break over nachos families eating lunch together. And then the produce section, the beating heart of the store, gleaming piles of limes and Roma tomatoes, mangoes, wava and papaya so ripe, the air is sweet. Some people come here with a plan, or in Latoya Williams' case, a vision. We find her on a busy afternoon at El Rey, checking out vegetables in the produce
6: section. Right now I'm looking for some vegetables to go into it because I want to make a chicken pot pie soup
7: chicken pot pie soup?
6: Yes, that ma'am. That sounds amazing.
7: What does
6: that mean? Actually, it is going to be my first time making it. I thought about it because I like the chicken and rice, but I also like biscuits and gravy. So i, I seen a little sauce, so I'm going to create a chicken pot pie soup with biscuits on the side.
7: That sounds amazing. So, the, so your like, pot pie part, the pie part, is going to be the biscuits
6: on the side. It's not like you put stuff. It's going to be on the side. That's the pie part. Everything else is going to be soup-based.
7: What kind of veggies are you thinking?
6: Peas, some um, green beans, corn, potatoes. The main thing is the sauce. The main thing.
7: Is this like a special occasion dinner or is it just oh, like... Oh, no.
6: It's just, this is what I want to eat, so this is what I'm going to make.
5: Others come to shop for basics. Everyone we talk to tells us how great the groceries are here. The produce is fresh, affordable, and for a lot of people who immigrated to Milwaukee, El Rey has fruits and vegetables that help them recreate dishes from home. When we meet Janu Maran, she's out running errands with her 15-year-old son. We catch her on a trip into El Rey for a bag of onions. Her son is over by the pineapples, hiding from the mic. My
8: name is Janu Maran. I'm from the Burma. Oh. Okay, my name is
1: Lena.
8: Yes. And this is Rafa. How long have you been coming to El Rey? It's El Rey, I think almost nine years. Nine years?
1: Yep. Do you live around here? I love El Rey.
8: So fresh and everything is cheap, right? Yeah. For everybody, it's better, yeah.
7: (laughs) Do you do most of your grocery shopping here?
8: Oh, it's just regular. I will come, it's just regular, yeah. What are you picking up today that you need? Oh, just for my son. He will be hungry. He need to be buy some food and then I will take it for the just onions. Yeah.
7: How old is your son?
8: Oh, 15 years, 15 almost. years almost. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> What's
7: his favorite thing that you make?
8: For the noodle. <laughs> oh, what kind of noodles? So like for the white noodle, for the Asian, just Asians store they have it
7: like a rice noodle like yes rice similar noodle. Like
8: pho? Uh, yeah like pho. that's similar like pho, but, but a different but kind different, right? yep what yes. do you
7: do with it
8: so i will cook meat some and then soup for the some chicken bone or the pork bone and then with soup the some fried meat and then with noodle yep that so very similar with for the whole yep
5: we're about to leave the produce section when we hear this knocking. A customer is crouched down, wrapping his knuckle down a line of watermelons. His name is Javier. He's from Veracruz, Mexico. La well, sandía, cómo la escoge?
4: Pues, le estamos tocando a ver si, si ya está.
7: Describe it. How How do you tell it's a good one?
4: Like more um, crispy. Like this, it's ready. Está listo. Sí, sí.
5: Agua yeah. uh-huh. He says he's have? going to make agua fresca with water, sugar, ice, and of course, watermelon. We make our way to the front of the store where there's a service counter. Above it, there are pictures of the Pope, Virgen de Guadalupe, and the Villarreal brothers. Nancy Perez is sitting behind the counter. She's a supervisor at the store and a long-time employee, of 22 years. familia fue una palabra que dijeron
8: empleados. I asked
5: Nancy about family. It's something that comes up a lot when we talk to the people who work at El Rey. She says they do become family in a way. They spend more time here at the store than they do at home. They're not just co-workers. There's a sense of
8: camaraderie. I asked
5: Nancy what impact she thinks the store has had on the community. A lot, she says. People come from far away to find what they're looking for. She says now, there's a new community coming to the store, like people from Nicaragua and El Salvador. So they're trying to offer them products from their home countries. She says, at first, it was us Mexicans who came to El Rey, looking for products from home. Now, it's them. Now it's more of an international store. For Maria, El Rey has been her go-to store for 22 years. We meet her at the meat counter, where she's ordering pork and chicken for dinner that night. Maria goes to the store about four times a week. She says that all of the receipts in her purse are from El Rey. Maria orders four pounds of pork stew meat, that's a lot of food. I ask who she's cooking for. She says her husband, her six kids, her in-laws. There's 11 of them. That's why she's making two main dishes. She wants to please everybody. Is that every day? On a special
4: occasion.
5: For me, it's And the plates? That's I
4: put dishwasher. I put in my dishwasher, no.
5: I ask whether she cooks for that many people every day. She says for her, it's every day. What about all the dishes, I ask? She says that's why I installed a dishwasher. El Rey has this way of becoming routine, even if you don't live in Milwaukee anymore. We meet Benita Joño in the back corner of the store, where she's pushing a cart filled with bags of El Rey's house-made tortillas.
9: Actually, I'm visiting from Michigan. I'm on my way home. What brought you here? Well, I lived here for a couple years when I was younger. My dad came here to work. And so, I think I was 11 years old. So I made friends with somebody, and we've been friends ever since. So I come here a couple times a year to come visit her, but also we come here to get the tortillas and stuff. So I take them home. I buy a whole bunch, take them home to the family because they love the tortillas. So that's what I'm doing right now.
7: So how many are you gonna get to take to your family?
9: Um, I probably, I take at least 15 packs, a whole bunch. (laughs) I got a big family at home, so. But yeah, that's just like usually what? Anybody that comes to Milwaukee to visit, any of my family members in Michigan, they always bring back tortillas and like the pan dulce, because we don't have all that in Michigan. So we do, but it's not like here, you know, it's- Not El Rey quality. Right, right, so. Uh,
7: You said that you lived here when you were younger Mm -hmm. as a kid. Did you remember like this grocery store when you were younger?
9: You know, I think it was small. I think they just made the tortillas or something I I don't know, all I know is my mom and dad used to have the tortillas and we used to make tacos or whatever
7: so when you bring them back to your parents in Michigan it's kind of like a reminder of life back in Milwaukee many yes. years ago
9: oh yeah and they always remind me don't forget to bring the tortillas and the pan dulces. how do
7: you think you'll enjoy them when you get together with your family back home
9: yeah we'll make tacos enchiladas my sister she makes the best enchiladas so we put the work on her nice. <laughs>
5: Forty-five years after he and his brother Beto opened the store, Ernesto Villarreal is proud of the impact they've had on the community. Beto passed away in
3: 2011. Uh, He
5: says that the stores have had a big impact on the community. Parents bring their kids to cash their first check here. And there are people from Puerto Rico that cash their checks from their home country. He says that there are a few places where they can do that. They've done something with the store, he says, that people feel proud of. I ask Ernesto what's to be of El Rey in another 45 years. He says that the store will still be here because the grandkids have started working. The second generation, he says, has already been helping, and now it's the third generation that has been helping. He's really proud of them, and they feel really proud of working at the store, too. We asked people whether they had fond memories of the store, and most of them said no. There's not really any one thing It's just their grocery store. Maybe it's because El Rey's presence in their lives is constant. It's in the mango a mother cuts for her son, in chaotic family feasts, in the money wired to loved ones far away. The store gives to the community, and the community gives to their loved ones.
0: That was WUWM's former Community Engagement Coordinator, Rafael Munoz and reporter Lena Tran at El Rey. Did you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Just search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Like Effect interviews. Coming up, Bubbler Talk will share the story of a formal complaint made against a Milwaukee Foghorn. But first, we'll have a new episode of our series, Sounds Like Milwaukee, where we ask you to share your favorite sounds from the community. And it's not a foghorn. Keep listening to Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. We've been asking Milwaukeeans to send in their favorite sounds from the community for our Sounds Like Milwaukee series. WUWM's Lena Tran brings the latest installment on what two listeners hear at work.
7: This is WUWM's Lena Tran. There are probably sounds that you associate with work. If you're a teacher, it's kids in a playground. if you work at a grocery store, it's the pinging of the cash register. Or maybe you're a cook, and it's knives furiously chopping vegetables. Two sounds like Milwaukee listeners wanted us to know what their work sounds are. Like Eric Brunner, who works at a jewelry shop in West Allis.
5: And my favorite sound is a 900 degree jewelry casting flask being quenched in water. I'll hear it, and I'm filled with anticipation and excitement. This is the big reveal. All the CAD designing and lost wax casting prep, and then, shoom! All the plaster bursts off to reveal a perfectly cast gold ring. It never gets old.
7: Or maybe, like me, you work from home. There's no equipment that makes cool futuristic sounds. It's just you and your computer, and maybe your cat begging for attention. Natalie Durr sent in something she hears when she hits pause on a busy day working remotely.
9: Hi, Milwaukeeans. This is Natalie Durr from the east side. The sound of wind chimes, particularly through my bedroom window, is such a beautiful addition to my days working from home. The sound reminds me that I'm a part of something bigger, a community of people who all live uniquely different lives, all in unison. I also love how a wind chime translates a simple breeze into a beautiful melody, reminding us that nature is, in fact, art.
7: Take a moment to listen. What do you hear out the window? Maybe someone else hears it too. For Lake Effect, I'm Lena Tran.
0: That was WUWM's Lena Tran with the latest from our Sounds Like Milwaukee series. You can explore other episodes at wuwm.com. Do you have a favorite sound you'd like to share? Make a recording of it and explain what it means to you. You can visit wuwm.com for instructions on how to send it in.
6: Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's
2: thirst for knowledge. I'm WUWM's Sam Woods. Last season on Bubbler Talk, we learned about foghorns and how Milwaukeeans like Mark Bihar still hold nostalgia for them. But WUWM listener Carl Nenig wanted to know more about a notable Milwaukeean in the 1970s who grew weary of their drone. The horns are off-key, off-tempo, and sounded at much too high a volume. That's Kenneth Shermerhorn or rather, a voice actor playing Schirmerhorn. Schirmerhorn was the conductor of the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra from 1968 to 1980, and is credited with taking the symphony to new heights, even earning honors from Finland for outstanding performance of Finnish composer Jean Sibelius's work, like the one you're hearing now. Schirmerhorn died in 2005, but in 1974, he issued a formal complaint to the U.S. Coast Guard about noise pollution from the foghorn. Describing himself as an expert on sound, He noted that he understands why they are used, you know, safety first and all that, but said the horns just sound too often and lamented that they could be heard all across downtown and the east side where his work and his home were. Sounding the horns every 15 seconds is too often and a flagrant form of noise pollution. It precludes a study or performance of music and inhibits even certain occupations, for example, piano tuning, among others. I realize the horns are necessary, but something must be done to have their annoying aspects reduced. After hearing our bubbler talk from last season about foghorns, WUWM listener Carl Nettig wrote to us about Horn's complaint. Though he was more interested in rock and roll at the time than symphony performances, Nettig said Shermerhorn was a well-known figure in Milwaukee.
3: He was brought
1: in to build the symphony orchestra, and he did a great job. He was nationally renowned. And uh, he was well-known, and he was a big shot in the city at the time.
2: As the conductor himself mentioned, safety is a concern. The foghorns were used to warn ships of nearby land when visibility was low. But Dr. Peter Lenz, a professor and researcher of audio perception at UWM, explains that for someone trying to concentrate on studying music, the foghorn is a major distraction, because it is fighting to occupy the same part of the brain as music. And you're using the musical part of the brain to process the music that you're writing, that you're reading, that you're conducting, and suddenly something else comes in, and that tries to grab hold of that same part of the brain, that same area that handles music and musical perception. And so it becomes very difficult to focus on the one thing when you've got something competing with it, and I think that's where Schirmerhorn was struggling, was the musical pitches of the Foghorns, We're interrupting his ability to focus on his music. Not only would the sound of a foghorn be competing against music to occupy Schirmerhorn's attention, but Dr. Lenz said just the expectation of future sound can have a similar effect on our concentration. And there's also the fact that once you start expecting it, once you start getting kind of irritated about it, he was obviously irritated, He, he wrote these letters. It became irritating, and when you start becoming irritated, it, that, that can impact your ability to attend to something and focus on something as well. So why did Shermerhorn resort to writing a letter to the Coast Guard rather than altering his home to combat the Foghorns? Well, as Jesse Spence, president of Noise Control Engineering, which is an acoustics consulting firm specializing in marine noise control, says that it's usually easier to alter sources of noise pollution at the source. Rather than reconstruct a home to combat the sound,
3: um, and I certainly would not recommend that people just start ripping their walls apart or just adding things onto their walls because, um, you know, it it may depending on several of the details, such as what is the, you know, the dominant frequency of sound that's being emanate, emanated by the foghorns, um, you know, you may have to add. A ridiculous amount of material to your wall to truly make a noticeable difference, um, just depending on some of those specifics. In the end, the Coast
2: Guard seemed more concerned with safety than with noise pollution, as the foghorns would continue to be used until GPS technology made them expendable. Schirmerhorn would end up leaving the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra in 1980, eventually ending up in Nashville where he would conduct the symphony orchestra there from 1982 until his death in 2005. His ashes are buried in Nashville within the Shermerhorn Symphony Center garden, where he can listen forever to performances of the orchestra there that he helped build, far away from the distraction of foghorns. Sam Woods, 89.7, WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
0: Support for Bubbler Talk comes from Palermo's Pizza and UW Credit Union. What have you always wanted to know about the Milwaukee area? Visit wuwm.com slash bubbler talk to submit your question. Bubbler Talk is a regular series on WUWM and Lake Effect. You can hear it every Thursday on Lake Effect and on Fridays during Morning Edition. If you have a question you'd like us to explore for Bubbler Talk and to check out past episodes, head on over to wuwm.com. And Bubbler Talk wraps up Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Ili Heikkinen-Weiss, Sam Woods, and Exkerit Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Mayon Silver, Taryn Powell, and Lena Tran from the WUWM news team this week. Jason Reeve is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. Join us again on Monday at noon for a conversation with local TikToker known as the Trans Handyman, who shares how she helps people with home repair. Plus, we'll look back on the time Oriental drugs operated on Milwaukee's east side. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on Listener Supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.